you have your Bibles, please open them to Galatians chapter 5. And if you don't have your Bible, there is one in the pew rack in front of you that you're welcome to use. We already did that. So tonight, um, we're wrapping everything up on our study into the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and this is the end of our, it's been 11 weeks. Um, I mean, we've had a couple of interruptions here and there, but it's been an 11-week study um, into the fruit of the Spirit. I, I have found it very beneficial personally. I hope you have found it beneficial as well. Um, and I think as Christians, we often need to be reminded of what sort of seems simple. Like, it should just be something we all get, but we need to be reminded. And so that's good that we can do that. So I'm grateful you guys have all kept coming. And like I said, I hope it's been beneficial for you. Um, I'm going to read our, the two verses that we've been focusing on for the whole time. Again, as we get started tonight, that's Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Um, along these lines of being reminded of things in the life of a Christian, uh, I think it's important that we're reminded that our life is not a series of random events. Um, we're not like airplanes waiting to land, circling around a crowded uh, airport in a holding pattern until the tower calls us in. We are to live this life. We're not living is more than just waiting for heaven. Right? We're not just waiting for heaven. Should, we should eagerly wait for our Lord's return. Absolutely. We should eagerly wait for that. We should long for it and even pray for it, for Christ to come back. Um, but we are called to live. We're called to live this life. As long as the Lord tarries, we're called and commanded and strengthened by God to live as Christians. Um, and that's what this study has reminded me of, and um, I hope the same is true of you. We have a wonderful purpose in life as Christians. Um, you know, we've heard that saying over the years, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Sometimes it's just thrown around, but it is true if you're a Christian. But it's often been said to describe a, a purpose that we don't know anything about, some phantom purpose that, we're waiting, a secret purpose that we're waiting to hear from God about in, in a special message. Maybe he'll write it in the sky or show us a sign, but that's not right thinking. And, and, and I've read this verse before, and 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We need to think about that. And what... What are the things that pertain to life and godliness, and where are they found? Well, the fruit of the Spirit that we've been studying, the fruit of the Spirit is what pertains to life and godliness. And it's found in the knowledge of Christ. We open our Bibles and we come and we study this. We are, we are gaining the knowledge of Christ, um, the one who called us to his own glory and excellence. Um, and we know what our purpose is. It's not a phantom purpose. It is to glorify God in our lives every day as he makes us more like his son. 
And everything else is, I mean, there are all kinds of things in life. Everything else really is a, is a side dish. It's, the rest is all secondary. Um, the rest of life is the proving ground. Right? The rest is our workplace. Even our workplace is the workplace as Christians. It's all the opportunity that God has given us with the place, the time, the people that, that we have in our lives and that we are to show him off to. We do it by living as we are called and prepared by him, and that is why we have the fruit of the Spirit. It's a wonderful thing. And so as we close this out, let's then remind ourselves what the fruit of the Spirit is. As we do a little bit of a recap tonight, combining all nine of the aspects of this um, godly fruit, let's put it all together, let's be encouraged by it, um, let's be exhorted by it to live as Christians, but to do so, as we've learned going through each one of these fruit of the Spirit, is that we need the Lord. We need the Lord to help us as Christians. And so let's go to him in prayer and ask him for help as we get started tonight. Our Father in heaven, we come to you again grateful to be here, grateful for the opportunity to open your word. What a privilege that is. Lord, I pray that you would give us tonight humble and willing hearts to hear what you have said, to apply it to our lives. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us through your spirit to live the way we ought to live as Christians, to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received, a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you strengthen us to do so. Pray you'd help us to see clearly in this life. Help us to honor you and glorify you with our words, our actions, our thoughts. May you be pleased, Lord, by using us however you see fit to serve your purposes. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ. What an amazing gift. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just as a reminder, Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians. Um, he's writing it to the, the churches in the region. Uh, did I say Colossians? I meant Galatians. Sorry, just checking to see if you're awake. Uh, he's writing this to the churches in the region of Galatia. Okay, so there's, there's not just one, there's several churches. Um, but there was a problem that had apparently infected all of the churches in the area. He doesn't say to the churches in Galatia, except this one or except that one. He wrote this general letter to the churches because of this problem that was going on. And I pointed out before, with many of his um, other letters to the churches, Paul begins with a loving greeting, um, expressing some kind of... Uh, pleasure that he has in, in seeing their lives as Christians lived out, uh, but where he says to other churches in his opening remarks, things like, I thank God for you whenever I think of you, or I'm, I'm praying for you. Uh, here with, with these churches in this letter, he begins 
very early on in his letter by saying, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace and of Christ and are returning and are turning to a different gospel. That's how he begins this letter. There's a major problem in these churches. And he's astonished by it. Do you remember, as we probably back in our introduction to the series, do you remember what one of the main problems affecting these churches was? You guys remember what that is? What was that? Uh, well, yeah, I, I think we could say that's true. That's not what Paul said. That's not, that wasn't their... Well, they're not understanding the gospel because they've turned. They've turned to something else, what Paul called a different gospel. Okay? They are not understanding. They have forgotten, and that's why he's astonished by it. Um, uh, and of course, when he says a different gospel, and he even clarifies that, he says not that there is another one. There, there is no other gospel. There's only one. Therefore, they had no gospel. If, if, they're, if you're following a different gospel, it's no gospel at all. Um, and it's really crazy. It's a crazy thing for Christians to do. In light of the true gospel that Paul preached everywhere he went, he was astonished that Christians would fall for this. And if we take verses from chapter 3 in Galatians, chapter 4 in Galatians, chapter 5 in Galatians, uh, we can pretty much sum up the problem and how Paul feels about it and, and why he feels that way and how he goes about attempting to change their minds with a remedy. And he really wants, we can see also that he really wants to be there with them I think he really wants to be there with them so he can scold them in person instead of in a letter. Um, but he is left to writing this letter. And we can take verse 1 in chapter 3, verse 11 in chapter 4, verse 20 in chapter 4, verse 13 in chapter 5, and verse 16 in chapter 5. We put those together, you can kind of get a pretty good picture of what's going on. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And 4.11 says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And 4.20 says, I, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And chapter 5, verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And verse 16 of chapter 5, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, we can, we can see the problem. And this is not just a problem in and of the first century church. Uh, we know this is an ongoing struggle over, uh, really over truth um, within the church, even in our day. The problem will always come at the church. This, this battle over truth will always come at the church. But what will the response of the church be? Uh, and, and these churches that Paul is writing to were not responding well to the, the lies coming in. This is where we must be vigilant. Okay? Vigilant for different gospels. Uh, and vigilant to reject them. The, the propensity to believe and follow different gospels is 
is ultimately a gratification of the desires of the flesh. Right? If we follow after a different gospel, that is no gospel. Um, it is really humans wandering from the truth and going after what their flesh desires. And here in this letter, we have instructions for how to handle it. You kind of boil down the instructions. He says we must walk by the Spirit. So we see Paul dealing with the theme in this letter of a different gospel by reminding Christians that they are set free in Christ. God has given them his Spirit. Okay, this is all building to what we're getting to here with the fruit of the Spirit. God has given them his Spirit. He gives Paul gives the basic problem, which is the conflict between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. That's what's going on here in this letter and, and, and what he gets to in chapter 5. Um, he says, you're free in Christ. Don't, don't use that freedom as a chance to bring the flesh back into the picture. You're saved by the grace of God, not by your works. And this is really the major false gospel or different gospel that they were following was a gospel of works, salvation by works. Don't seek to indulge your desires, but live by the Spirit of God. Well, what is meant when Paul tells the Ephesians, in a different letter, Paul tells the Ephesians um, not to get drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit? What does he mean by that? And, and I'll give you a hint. It doesn't mean we stagger around uncontrollably and act like a drunk person and say it's from the Spirit of God. That's not what being filled with the Spirit is. What does that mean, being filled with the Spirit? Okay, that certainly is there. That is there also, yes. Yeah. He does live in us, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Being filled with the Spirit is, is that we would be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Okay? through his word. Not a warm and fuzzy feeling, but that we are controlled by the Spirit of God as we submit to and let his word guide our thoughts and our beliefs and our actions. That's what it is. We are, it's really about being controlled by the Spirit, not like robots, but a submission to the word of God. I want my thoughts to be his thoughts. I want my ways to be his ways. Where do I find them? Find them in the word of God. And the Spirit of God helps me to have understanding of his word. The Spirit and the flesh don't mix. Okay, in our Galatians 5 uh, chapter, uh, verse 17, it says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, so Paul writes, Three verses, then, in, in chapter 5, he writes, three verses telling Christians what the desires and works of the flesh produce, and it's all bad. Um, in those verses, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
That is all from us. That is what the flesh produces. It's the fruit of the flesh. But the Spirit of God, and only the Spirit of God, produces the opposite of these. And Paul gives that list also, and that's what, where we've been. That's what we've been looking at. Those nine qualities or virtues that he calls the fruit of the Spirit. And of course, there's much more uh, that the Spirit of God does in the life of believers, but this is the list that he includes in the letter to the churches in Galatia. And he says here in our verses that we've been looking at, and again, look at these. This is a contrast to the, what is produced by the flesh. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's his list of, of what the Spirit of God produces. Those, for those, we need divine production. So let's go over each of them again uh, briefly so we can have them fresh in our minds. We've taken 11 weeks and we've gone over, gone over these, <clears throat> so I want to do like a quick run through um, just to get them all back fresh in our minds. Love is the first one, the first of the listed fruit of the Spirit. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The Greek word that Paul used there is agape, and, and there is no greater agape that anyone would have than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And of course, our example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate example. It is this kind of love that he's writing about. In Greek, there are different words used for, for the word that we translate love. Um, and they have different meanings, but in this sense, and what, what Paul is writing here is, in essence, goodwill. We went over this before. It is benevolence. It is a willful delight in the object of love, the object to be loved, right? This is a love of the will. It is a choice to love whatever the object of that love is without a required performance or merit. Okay? And if, if you, as a Christian don't like this kind of love. If you don't like that definition, then you don't like the way that Christ loved you. We are sinners. We needed Christ to love us in this way. Um, it's, it's very important to us as Christians. This is a sacrificial love, exemplified by John talking about one laying down his life for others. There's no greater word even that Paul could use here to describe the love of Christ for those that he saves. It is a sacrificial love of the will, of the one doing the loving, regardless of what is received back from the object loved. This is where it's really difficult for us as human beings. We tend to want results. If I love you a certain way, I want to see, I want to see results. Right? And if you don't, no more love. Right? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, again, that same word, that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay? And it's an amazing description of love, and God is, as we think about this that is being produced by the Holy Spirit in us, it's this kind of love, a sacrificial love. Um, God is not asking us to do something that he hasn't done. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love. 
Okay? It's evident. He shows his love, that same word, for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's it's amazing. It's wonderful. This is exactly what the Spirit of God is producing in you if you're a Christian. This kind of love. The ability to love regardless of what you get back. This is important in our, in our families, important in marriages, um, that we love this way. And we can't do it on our own. This is not something that human beings produce. This is produced by God. And it's how we must love others. We are required to love others this way. So it should cause us to think really hard about our, our lives, how we are living them. So that's love. That was the first one. Joy is the second one. It's an inner, as we talked about, it's an inner cheerfulness, a gladness of heart or delight. And it's, it's not a surface level. Uh, this is joy unmoved by our troubles, by our pain, by our sorrows in life of which we all have them, right? But this joy that is being produced by the Spirit of God is not shaken by that, is not moved by that. It, it is joy in all adversity, and it's, it's deep down, and it is joy that it's rooted in something. What is this joy rooted in? How is it possible to have this? What would you say the joy is rooted in? Absolutely. Salvation. Our joy is rooted in the fact that our sins are forgiven in Christ. We are no longer condemned. And we can have joy in that, therefore, in any and every difficulty of life. It doesn't mean the difficulties aren't difficult. It doesn't mean that there isn't hardship. And Paul suffered greatly because of his faith in Christ and his commitment to the gospel. You remember, even at one point, he describes how he despaired of life itself to, to describe how terrible his situation was. And see, the trials of life, even apart from our own sin, want to rob us of joy. Right? When the difficulties of life come, what is one of the first things to go? It's our, it's our joy. Um, it, it always wants to rob us of joy. But Paul was not robbed of his joy. In fact, just the opposite. 2 Corinthians 7.4, he says, I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Who says that? Nobody says that. In all my affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. But he is overflowing with joy. And again, you have to go back to the fact that it's rooted in something else. Not rooted in comfort and those kinds of things. It's rooted in truth. And that is the truth of salvation. Um, and how do we apply that joy in those difficult circumstances? We have to remember. We have to remember what Christ has done for us no matter what is going on around us. That Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Savior. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's on his throne. Nothing in all this world can change that truth. And therefore, as, as a Christian, as a child of his, um, I do not have to fear. When the hardships come, and they will, we can be joyful. Again, it's an inner joy. It doesn't mean you have to be happy about the difficult things that happen to you. It's not like you run around with a fake smile on your face or something like that. This is, this is an inner joy. And it's unshaken, unmoved by the circumstances of life. 
Um, Therefore, in the face of the holiness of God and our inability to be right from him, right with him, apart from Christ, we're joyful in the gospel. Because without the gospel, there's no hope. Nehemiah the prophet said, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That is the joy produced by our knowledge of who God is. Not be shaken. The Spirit of God gives you strength for all things by producing joy in your heart. So James can say something that we sometimes think is strange. He says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. We just That's not our first response. But that's the biblical response. That's the godly response. In the face of hatred of the world toward Christians, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 15, 11. He wants us to know his, his word, what he says, is intended to be enough to bring us complete joy every moment of our lives. We should be marked by this as Christians. And remember my Charles Spurgeon quote, he said, gloomy Christians who do not resist despondency and strive against it, but who go about as if midnight had taken up its abode in their eyes and an everlasting frost had settled on their souls are not obeying the commands of God. The command to rejoice is as undoubted a precept of God as to love the Lord with all your heart. The vows of God are upon you, O believer, and they bind you to be joyful. Joy in God is suitable to our condition. Why should the children of a king go mourningly all their days? That is not Christian. We are to be joyful. Peace is the next one. Peace in the biblical sense is talking about joining or binding together something that has been separated. Okay, the idea here is that it is something that used to be together, but was separated and is then bound together as one thing again. Okay, we get the picture of our redemption and restoration in the relationship to God here. Okay, if there is division or dissension, that is the opposite of peace. Here he's talking about the state where things are as they should be. There's, there's harmony. And when we think about it, what is, the, what is the example of the worst case of no peace that we know of? What is the absolute worst case? scenario of no peace that we know of. Separation from God. Absolutely. Not being saved. That is having no peace with God. Nothing worse than having no peace with the creator of the universe. No peace with the one who has all the power. And Nahum 1-2 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be you. And Nahum 1.8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And these verses describe the person who's not at peace with God in salvation. But Paul, we have to remember in this letter now, he's, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who 
do have peace with God through salvation. And so in terms of God's wrath over sin, the one who is in Christ no longer has the wrath of God resting on him. So he's not talking about peace with God in this sense here in in salvation. That's already happened with these people that he's writing to. As Romans, Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's absolute promise of God. Where there was no peace with God because of sin, in Christ we have peace with God. And we have to really hear that as Christians. We have to understand that as Christians because often we struggle with peace. Um, the fruit of the Spirit is peace produced in the lives of those who have that peace with God. Again, this is written to Christians. So he's not talking about this peace. I wanted to bring that up because that is the ultimate peace. And you can't have the peace that the Spirit is producing without first being at peace with God in terms of your salvation. It is the peace that comes from being at peace, if you will. If I'm still in my sins, I am not at peace with God. If I'm saved, I am now at peace with God for eternity. And the Spirit of God brings about an everyday peace in the heart based on that truth. Again, we're back to truth. Someone without the indwelling Spirit cannot experience that inner peace or harmony. It's impossible. We talked about the difference between inner peace and outer peace last time. The Spirit of God is not producing outer peace. What do I mean by that? He's not producing outer peace. What does that mean? They're produced on the inside, right? Yeah, he's not producing outside peace. What would outside peace be that he's not producing? Okay, right, so, so what's not promised here, what the Holy Spirit is not producing is everything going well, you know, no conflict, no problems. That's not what's being talked about. Outer peace is the absence of war or conflict, the absence of pain and suffering, the absence of adversity or trials of any kind. And if any of us think for even a minute, honestly, those things are everywhere all the time. We feel them all the time. We see them all the time. So that is not, so we don't take this and say, well, clearly he's not producing peace because look around us. No, this is talking about the inner peace in a Christian. Peace as the fruit of the Spirit is is tranquility of mind based on the consciousness of a right relationship with God. That's what this inner peace is. How? For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. It brings about peace. This is an inner peace. So even in the midst of everything we see going on around us, the believer can be at peace in his heart because of the truth, Jesus Christ. Patience is the next one. Patience or forbearance, long-suffering or endurance or steadfastness, your Bible translations might say some of those other words besides patience. 
Uh, it is describing a state of emotional calm or quietness in the face of provocation, misfortune, or unfavorable circumstances. Again, you start to see a pattern here that a lot of these, a lot of the fruit of the Spirit is tied to adversity or bad circumstances. William Barclay describes it as a situation where a person um, basically doesn't lose it when people are foolish, not to grow irritable when they seem unteachable. It is the ability to accept the folly, the perversity, the blindness, the ingratitude of men, and still to remain gracious and still to toil on. It is important here that we can also see how the fruit of the Spirit can and do work together. In this list that we have in Galatians 5, they're not separate things that are only doing their own thing. Um, multiple things can be true at once. We can see several aspects of the fruit of the Spirit working together at the same time. Uh, in Romans 2, 4, it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay, we see forbearance and, and patience there but we also see other fruit of the Spirit that are mentioned in there. To presume here is to believe we can benefit from God's kindness and, and his, his patience towards us without being the same way from our own hearts towards other people. Now, we should not presume on the riches of his kindness and patience. It's not just that the Spirit of God produces this in us. We are commanded to handle life this way. Again, we're talking about living. We are to be living as Christians. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Again, multiple aspects of the fruit of the Spirit are at play but patience is a must when it comes to our interactions with others and in life's trials in general. Paul even thought of himself as the object of Christ's patience so that you and I can see an example of it. And, and he would think of it as the main example of Christ's patience. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.16, But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul lifts up his own life as an unbeliever and, and his salvation through Christ as an example. Those who are thinking of trusting Christ can see how patient Christ was with a man like Paul. So, so none of us ever thinks we're beyond the patience of God. Right? But that's how Paul thought of himself. He, he's this example. If, if God can be patient with me, he can be patient with anybody. That's kind of how he's, how he's looking at it. That's how he thought of himself, that Christ had to be more patient with him than any other. He said he was the chief of sinners. And James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and, late, and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming 
of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts is a great exhortation. Again, we're back to the truth. What are we establishing our hearts on? It's on knowledge, what we know about Christ through his word. And when, when patience with life and with other people wanes, we must guard our hearts. Uh, we are susceptible to a lack of patience. It's very easy to be impatient. We need to establish our hearts in the truth. The Lord is coming soon. Kindness is the next one. Kindness here is talking about, again, about a tender concern for another and also that deeper significance in there that it regards providing what is needed and useful. Okay, this is the fruit produced by the Spirit of God in his people. It is a tender concern for others that does no harm and provides what is needed. He's producing that. God is producing that which he is characterized by in the hearts of believers. God is perfectly kind and directs that kindness to sinful people for salvation. The hearing of the gospel, if you're a Christian, the hearing of the gospel did something in you. You are saved. And what the gospel did in your life came from the kindness of God. This was the point of the verse we read earlier in Romans 2.4, which says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What is it? That verse is pretty clear on what is intended by the kindness of God. What does that verse say is meant to, that the kindness of God is meant to accomplish in the hearts of people? What does that verse say? Knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That is Romans 2.4. That part is at the end of Romans 2.4. So that is what is meant to be accomplished by God's kindness. To bring people to repentance. What kind of people? Sinful people. Who's a sinful person? Everybody. God's kindness through the gospel is what led you. You are a Christian. God's kindness through the gospel is what led you to repent of your sin and to trust in him. That is a, if there was ever an example, that is the example of a tender concern for others. God had a tender concern for us, and we are called to have this for others. Why is that so hard to have a tender concern for others? Because they bug us, right? People are irritating. But we forget. We lose sight. We get focused on others, and we forget that we needed, absolutely needed this kindness from God, salvation. And this kindness that we are called to is not manufactured kindness, but that which is God's. He possesses it. And it's given to us through his spirit that indwells every believer. And this, like most of the fruit of the spirit, is, is an attitude. It's an inner virtue with an eye on others and what they need. And we've already received it as Christians. And this is something for us to remember. It's something for us to 
to live out and to give to others as well. And which others? Which others are you and I as Christians to show kindness to? All others. Because that's good. I was hoping somebody would say that and not say, I don't know, something else that was wrong. <laughs> yes, everyone. Everyone, especially people we might consider to be enemies. Hey, Luke 6.35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Okay, the implication here is that we would be kind to the ungrateful and to the evil because our Lord is that way. And this is, again, this is very difficult for us because we want to condition our kindness on certain responses. I'm going to withhold my kindness because you treated me this way or that way. And that is absolutely unbiblical. It is unchristian. The implication here, again, is that because God is this way, first and foremost, to you and me in salvation, that we would also be that way. Goodness is the next one. Again, this word Paul used here is, is only found in biblical and church writings and has been translated as goodness in our Bibles. It is a word that, as someone said, finds its fullest and highest expression in that which is willingly and sacrificially done for others. It is moral and spiritual excellence manifested in active kindness. Okay? These things start sounding similar after a while. This is an inward morality of character. And so, again, I would just point out this intermingling of more than one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. These are not the same, but they go together. We can see the difference here between kindness and goodness, uh, as is used here in our Galatians 5 passage, verse 22. Goodness, again, is an, an inner quality, a foundational character trait that when confronted with the opportunity of immorality, results instead in doing the righteous thing. Particularly when it comes to benefiting other people. In the more important spiritual sense, and we go back to talking about this definition that it, it um, has an eye on other people um, and, and what they need, in the spiritual sense, it obtains what is useful or beneficial for their soul. There's nothing more important than that. In almost all of Scripture, as you go through Old Testament, New Testament, in almost all of Scripture, goodness is associated with God alone. You see verses that are talking about goodness, the vast majority of the time it's describing God, not human beings. There are only really three New Testament examples of goodness being applied to people, in a way, and, and our passage is one of them in, in that this is a, what the Spirit of God is producing in us. Um, 
but even these verses, these three verses that do mention it, are it's never manufactured, it's never conjured up by human beings. This is always and only produced by God. Any goodness exhibited in human life is the result of God's work in them. Paul expressed his approval of the Gentiles he was ministering to in their Christian lives when he said in Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. He's not saying they, they filled themselves up with goodness. Okay, that would go against everything else Paul teaches. But again, we're back to this word knowledge. He talks about they're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. Okay, That is always a reference to knowledge of Christ through his word. Uh, and, and because of that, they are able to instruct one another. Okay, they are, They're full of goodness, and it's not their own goodness. It is the goodness of God produced in them through the Holy Spirit. Faithfulness is our next one. And what's being talked about here in our, in our context is, again, is not salvation. Um, our faith, of course, is, is involved in our salvation, but that's not what he's talking about. His use of the word here that's been translated as faithfulness uh, is serving a different purpose. Um, and this is, again, um, like we said before, this is about what's being produced in this, by the Spirit of God in those who are already Christians, those who have already put their faith and trust in Christ. Okay, so this is something different. Um, in other words, salvation has been accomplished by God, and now he's producing in the lives of Christians the fruit of his own spirit, which is faithfulness. And what Paul is talking about, what the Spirit of God is producing in us, is really the character trait or attribute of being trustworthy. And some have this translated as fidelity. It, it doesn't only mean that, but that would really be a good way to boil it down. It, it was used that way in, even in Greek secular writings. It's, it's the characteristic of people who are reliable, a person who is loyal and constant and dependable and devoted. It is the holiness and submissiveness, the faithfulness of God's people to what he says that points directly to Jesus Christ and his glory and not to our own. So if we're talking about, if we're talking like that as Christians, about being constant or being devoted, to what? What would we say there? Oil, what are we talking about? What's that? Yes, to our king, absolutely. To God, right? His word, living by it, no matter what goes on around us. No matter what the world tries to tell us is true or right, if it contradicts the word of God, it's to be cast out. We can make God attractive by living the life of obedience to his word, no matter what our circumstances. Or we can cause others to despise God because we look just like everyone else. We live just like everyone else. Why, why would somebody want anything to do with Christianity if... I'm doing and saying and acting just like they do. Where's the benefit? So what the Spirit of God is producing in you as Christian is not just 
the knowledge of what it means to be faithful. Not just the attitude of faithfulness, but also the ability to live out that faithfulness in the context of everyday life. The opposite is seen in God's people in Deuteronomy 32.20. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. And these were not truly God's people because they were not faithful. Their lack of faithfulness proved they were not his. Man cannot produce this. The Spirit of God does. So the Christian can live a faithful, not, faithful life and now has the ability to live it out. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In what? In whatever you do. We are serving the Lord Christ. That should cause us to think. We should be faithful because the Lord is faithful. Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Gentleness. Okay, this word Paul uses referring again to a mildness of disposition. It is meekness. Some of your translations might say meekness there. Remember, I pointed out that uh, it was used in secular writings to describe a soothing wind or a healing medicine and a cult that had been broken. We've, we, we have as our example, and our ultimate example, again, of gentleness is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, um, as is the case with all other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. He is the perfect example of all of them. Jesus has flat out said that we should learn gentleness of heart from him. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I went through a list of words or phrases in Scripture that are often associated with gentleness to help us define that word as well. Words and phrases like, lowly in heart, showing perfect courtesy, open to reason, a quietness of spirit, godliness, among many others. We also looked at the scriptural opposites, like committing violence against others, speaking evil against others, quarreling or being a drunkard or a lover of money or perversities. Gentleness or meekness same Greek word, is, is a command of God. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Again, we see multiples of the fruit of the Spirit in these verses. Ray Stedman said, Meekness is seeing everything as coming from God and accepting it without murmuring and without disputing, patiently submitting to any and every offense without any desire for revenge or retribution. That's hard, isn't it? 
this is important for us to understand, as well as the fact that, thankfully, God is the one who makes this possible in our lives. He is the one that produces this. If it was left to me to exhibit these things in my life, would not be there. It has to be the Lord. And the last of them that we looked at, self-control. Um, and again, this is speaking about power or lordship. And as I pointed out last time, it's literally about holding oneself in or the ability to take a grip of oneself. And we restrain our desires and passions. We control them or rule over them. How? By and only by God giving us his spirit, um, now having the ability and the godly desire to do so. And Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In other words, you're, you're left exposed to evil thoughts and failure in times of temptation. And we said self-control is not only about not doing something. Sometimes we can limit it to that realm. I'm using self-control, so I'm not going to do that thing. But self-control can also be about, about making ourselves do something that we should be doing. And it's not just about stopping something completely. It can also be about merely doing something in moderation. It is the Spirit of God who produces and strengthens us to have self-control. And we don't want to put the wrong emphasis on the word self there. Sometimes we do. This is produced by God. It doesn't mean that we have no part in it. We, we are to be active participants in living our lives, being obedient to the Word of God. But it is only possible through His Spirit. And that's a lot. When you go through the fruit of the Spirit and you go through all nine of those things um, all at once like that, it can sound so difficult. When we think about the definitions of those things in Scripture, it can sound daunting, it can sound difficult. Um, that, honestly, is really how we should look at it. In fact, it is impossible to live this way for man. Just like with salvation, what is impossible with man is possible with God. He doesn't, he doesn't command us to do these things and sit back and laugh as we stumble around and we can't do it, giving us some impossible task and then leaving us to the impossibility of it. He commands it, but he produces what is necessary for us to live it out doesn't just leave us. And we learn from all these that, that, again, this is supposed to be what the Christian life is marked by. Paul is given such stark contrast between what is produced by the desires and works of the flesh, we went over that list, and, and what is produced by the Holy Spirit. A person without the Spirit of God is left under the law, and that is not a place that anyone should want to be found because there's no way to be right with God under the law. 
person cannot obey the law in the way that is required, and, and so they have no peace with God. They have no hope. All they can produce is the rotten fruit of the flesh, and the law of God is against those things. And that's where the gospel comes in. And that's why Paul was so perplexed and concerned by these churches, abandoning the true gospel for a different gospel, a false gospel of works. Um, earlier in our Galatians 5 passage, Paul says in 5.18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And there is a clear distinction because of the grace of God and salvation. Believers are led by the Spirit. We may argue sometimes, but the Spirit of God will always win out in the life of a true believer. So as the Spirit produces His fruit in our lives to be lived out on this earth, we are reminded and encouraged by the truth that I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So at the end of our passage, after listing out the fruit of the Spirit, there's a portion that we've been letting sit there without going over it. It's at the end of verse 23 where it says, against such things there is no law. And those things it's referring to is the fruit of the Spirit. Those nine things we've been going over. It says, against such things there is no law. And the implication is that there, there is clearly a law, God's law, against the desires of the flesh. Okay, That really bad list that we went over. But there is no law, either from God or even from man, against the fruit of the Spirit. There's no prohibition against these elements produced in, in the life of a Christian as they're lived out. Christian will less and less produce the rotten fruit of the flesh as God sanctifies you. Um, that will be less and less a part of your life. Our concern, as we mentioned last week, is that we as Christians, yeah, CJ. Yeah, so earlier in chapter 5 in Galatians, and Paul is really dealing with this in terms of salvation, this uh, being under the law, and, and the people attaching themselves to the uh, different gospel, which is the false gospel of works, and specifically in terms of circumcision is what he was going after because they were starting to believe that and, and say that you had to have circumcision to be saved. Um, and he said in... Uh, verse 2 of chapter 5, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Okay? I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are, he goes on, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So if, if someone's saying, I have to do this to be a Christian, this or that. I mean, here specifically he's talking about circumcision, but really it's 
If I say I have to keep the law to be saved, do X, Y, and Z, then the Word of God says, then you better keep all of it perfectly, which is impossible, and that's the point, right? It, no one can do it except Christ. And that's the point is, if you're going to say that's how you're saved, you, the, the, the requirement is that you do it all, every point of the law perfectly, okay? Because if that's your measure, then that's how you have to do it. But he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. So if I'm saying I'm doing it this way, the reality is I have severed myself from Christ. Christ is of no use to me because I'm not saved by obedience to the law. I'm saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I repent of my sin, put my trust in his work on the cross alone for my salvation. Okay, so, so we attach ourselves to that because that's what the Bible says. If I attach myself to the law, I'm basically condemning myself because I'm saying I'm going to save myself by doing these things. Instead of saying, I can't do those things, I need Christ to save me because he did those things and he took my place on the cross. Does that answer your question? Okay, yeah, so it, because we are saved by grace doesn't mean I no longer have to keep God's moral law. I, we have to keep God's moral law. If we don't, whenever we don't, we're sinning. Okay, so that's a fact, uh, yes. Um, but we are not saved by keeping the law. We are saved through our faith in Christ. We also don't and can't lose our salvation by not keeping the law. Once we're saved, you know what I mean? Like, you can't lose your salvation. We will fit, uh, stumble in sin, but we don't lose our salvation because of it. Because Christ, uh, his work on the cross was sufficient. It took care of all my sin. Now, I don't want to sin. I'm going to struggle with that. But um, I don't, I, I, and we still do need to be obedient to the word of God. We need to be obedient to the moral law. Following the moral law is not what saved me. And I can't grab onto that and say, God, look what I did. Right? But yes, so the, the command to be obedient to his law is still there. Yeah. The moral law. You know, we don't, we don't follow the sacrificial laws and all that. Right, yeah, we don't do that. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, and we do have to be aware that there are, that not every, even every Protestant denomination teaches assurance of salvation. Some do teach that you can lose your salvation. That's not biblical. And, you know, if I could lose my salvation, uh, you know, and which they would all believe you can get it back somehow, 
how am I going to get it back? I, I got to do something to get it back, right? So we don't lose our salvation. We can see that clearly in Scripture that, that um, you know, all that the Father has given him will come to him, and he will never cast them out, right? We can, you can read plenty of Scriptures that give us assurance of salvation, and it's very clear. Boy, how miserable would it be if we didn't have assurance of salvation? I'd be, every day I'd be thinking, I lost it. Yeah, I don't feel saved today, right? Yeah, so. And, and all, really, and our, our, our concern, as we mentioned last week, is that as Christians, um, is that we may be found ineffective or unfruitful if we don't actively live out what the Spirit of God is producing. Okay, that's a that's a possibility. We don't want that in our lives. Um, and I'll remind you of Peter's words on the subject, Second Peter one eight through ten. He's talking about these kind of qualities. It's not in the, our passage here with all the same fruit of the Spirit, but some of them are included. What he says here, and he's talking about these as qualities that belong Christians through the Spirit. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Okay? He's not saying if you practice these qualities, you'll be saved. Okay? We're not saved by practicing these qualities. They are worked in us through the Holy Spirit. But, like I said before, we have a responsibility to be obedient. We participate in this life, being obedient. If we follow these things, if we live this way, desire to live this way, um, we will prove to be Christians. We will not, in the end, find that we are not believers. Only Christians will continue in this. Only Christians will have this to begin with, these qualities, and increasing. We should, as, in, as Christians, be increasing in these things. Last year, I was here. A year later, as a Christian, I should be sinning less than I was the year before. I should be, have more knowledge of Christ than I did before. Um, I should be more sanctified than I was before, because we should be moving forward. It should be our a motivation in life to continue to study the Word of God and know more and more about Him. And if we sort of wanted to wrap all of this up uh, into one word. I would say that word is godliness. If we're talking about the, the fruit of the Spirit, I think is, the, is perfectly exemplified in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is God. So what the Spirit is producing of himself, which is godliness, that's what he's producing, there's nothing greater in our lives than to be found godly. Right? Paul told Timothy, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And godliness is expressed in the Christian life, in the life of one who's a tool of the Heavenly Father. We are fashioned inwardly by His Spirit with the ability to exhibit His fruit. It is, it is absolutely for this present life. He is working in us the things we need for this present life, not 
just for the life to come. Now, is it for the life to come also? Absolutely. But we don't just sit back and do nothing and not participate, not live a Christian life, and waiting for, for Christ to return. We are participating in this life. Yeah, you went right to my next verse. That's good. Oh, you're good. Yeah. It's the natural progression. Yeah. I thought the same thing too, and, I, and I'm not saying it's untrue, but I think you could almost say it about each one of those. Because if, if I'm truly kind, I'm going to have self-control. Right? I mean, they're so intermingled, but I think you're right. I, I mean, you could, you could almost think of it uh, with every one of them, attach the other ones to it, um, because they're so intermingled. That's why there's so many passages of Scripture that, that have those qualities in them. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, you bring up those last verses. We haven't focused on those verses very much. I mean, I've mentioned them a couple times, but um, as we think about living this life, that's important. These are to be a part of our life. They can't not be the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God is living in you, these are a part of your life. Now, they may be more visible in one Christian's life than another Christian's life, because they're being more obedient, but they're there. God is producing them. Um, and he says in verses 24 and 25, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So what does that mean then? That, that we Christians, who are the ones that belong to Christ, what does it mean that we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? I didn't go to the cross. What does that mean? It's dead. Yeah, I mean, crucifixion, we're, we're, we're talking about death. Something is, something is dead. It's been killed, right? Those evil desires, those passions um, that are the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, those are, those are things that were, were a part of our lives in such a way that they controlled us. Okay, they've been killed in our lives. It doesn't mean that they never pop up uh, whenever we stumble in sin, but the desires of the flesh no longer master the Christian. They do not master the Christian. Where you had no ability, no desire to get rid of them before, you do now because the, the power those had over you was killed on the cross with Christ. He rose from the grave. He conquered sin. He conquered death. It's been crucified with Christ. Okay, I, didn't, I wasn't crucified, but in a sense, we as Christians, we identify with Christ. We, we, are, we are baptized into Christ. We associate ourselves with Christ. He has made us new. We have the Spirit. We know what our purpose is. We have the ability. We have the desire that we didn't before. We couldn't before without the Spirit of God indwelling us. 
So we have all these things now, and we do not want to gratify the desires of the flesh. We will sometimes stumble, but thank God that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we live by the Spirit, which we do as Christians, we live by the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you don't have a choice. The Spirit of God is living in you. The Spirit of God is producing his fruit in your life. We need to get with the program. We need to grow in that. Okay? Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's what he's talking about there. So this should be sort of a daunting encouragement to us as Christians. And all of these fruit of the Spirit, we are commanded that these would be a part of our life. But not that you would figure them out. They're commanded, yet they're given. They're produced by God, and he strengthens you to live them out. And it's all, we have to remember, all based on the foundational truth that your sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus. There's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That frees me to live live a life in obedience to God and live out what he's producing in me. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us with that. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word, for this encouragement. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves before your word. Help us, Lord, as we live our lives, every aspect of thought, word, and deed. Let us think of you. Let us remember the truth that our sins are forgiven. I pray that we will apply our salvation to every area of life, that we will not be unloving, Lord, because you are so loving to us. We would not be unkind or or lack gentleness, patience, or faithfulness, joy, or self-control. God, that, that we would not lack in any of these and in, and in a desire to live these out because you are the perfect example of all of them. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, lived the life that we can't live. He perfectly lived every fruit of the Spirit out. And that's hard to imagine, Lord, because we, we can't do it. But our Savior, the perfect Lamb, being God, perfectly lived human life. He humbled himself, took on flesh, and we are so grateful because he is our substitute. He is our propitiation. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. We want to glorify you and honor you in that. You are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you all for being here.